1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Emmerich, and today we have Michael D. Smith, Professor of Information Technology and Marketing at Carnegie Mellon, and the author of The Abundant University, Remaking Higher Education for a Digital World. Welcome, Michael.
0: John, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Please uh, introduce yourself a little bit, explaining your teaching emphasis at Carnegie Mellon, and eventually what led to writing this book.
0: Yeah, so I, I think about um, how technology changes things and, and particularly how technology changes institutions, whether they're firms or entire industries. Um, so back in 2015, my colleague and I uh, uh, got really interested in the entertainment industry and how technology was about to change the entertainment industry. And right around 2020, I started hearing people in higher education say things that sounded a lot like what the entertainment industry was saying right before their business changed.
1: Yeah, that was a fascinating part of the book. And, and I, I'm familiar a little bit with the writing and um, publication timeline. You know, since that time, you now have the strike and artificial intelligence and an, a, yet another wave of disruption in, in the entertainment industry coming.
0: Yeah, absolutely fascinating. How do we protect intellectual property in a world where you can you can embed it in uh, large large language networks? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So uh, as I said when we were just chatting before I hit record, a few hotter topics right now um, for families with college age children between student loan forgiveness in the news, a big shakeup in the college ranking overlords and the way they uh, you know, sell magazines or whatever it is, trying desperately to stay relevant, I think. But let's start at the beginning. Um, universities, private universities, public universities, but that, that bachelor's education thrives on scarcity value that comes in two or three different forms. Can you talk about you know, access, the instructions, and the, and the credentials?
0: Yeah, this goes back to the entertainment industry, actually. like when We had a, um, a, a chief, senior, senior executive at one of the big six studios come to our class in 2015, and my colleague, my colleague Rahul asked him, are you at all worried about the threat that Amazon, Netflix, and Google pose to your business? And he said, you know what? My business is different. The same six studios have dominated my business for the last hundred years. There's a reason for that. That's not going to change um and and what's fun about the quote is it's 100% true historically right the right. same six studios had dominated his business and it's not like the internet was the first technological shift he faced so the puzzle is what's different today um and at least in that context what we said was here's why your six studios have dominated the industry And here's why technology is changing those sources of scarcity that you used to control and making them abundant. Um, What's the parallel? The parallel here is right at the beginning of the pandemic, I heard a president of a a major university get asked almost the same question. And from what I heard, give almost the same answer. You know, the same 62 universities have dominated my industry, blah, blah, blah. So it, it really forced me to go back and say, okay, what's the structure that has allowed a small number of universities to dominate this industry. And I think it's all about scarcity. It's about who controls access to the scarce seats in the classroom, who controls access to the scarce faculty experts. And then the real interesting one is who controls access to the valuable credentials you need to signal your expertise in the marketplace.
1: Yeah, and we'll definitely get into the value of that piece of paper, that parchment and the the name that's at the, at the top of it. Um, but first, um, so technology is the common thread between what is transformed and disrupted the entertainment industry. And we believe is in the process of disrupting and changing the education industry, because it is a business that so the dollars are just too big to ignore that. Um, how, walk us through the, the, the if I'm saying it right, MOOCs, Massive Open Online Courses.
0: Yeah. So Massive Open Online Courses that we got around 2012, um, a lot of people looked at that and said, well, this is going to totally change uh, higher education. Um, yeah, including years ago. Clay Christensen. Yeah. yeah, eleven years ago, uh, Clay Christensen said, "In five years, universities are going to be in real trouble." It's now eleven years later; nothing's happened. Um, and so, I think a lot of my colleagues look at that and say, "Well, we must be immune to disruption." What I'm trying to argue in the book is that, yeah, MOOCs changed things, but it only made access and and you know access to the seats and access to the to the professors more abundant. It didn't change access to the credentials. Yeah. Um, the third scarcity you, value. Yeah. Yeah. If you change that, that's what I think is really going to, really going to affect us. And I start, I think we're starting to see that change. I think we're starting to see a lot of employers saying we're de-emphasizing the four-year degree in our hiring practice. And what to me is really interesting, um, and should embarrass us quite frankly, as universities is they're de-emphasizing the four-year degree because they want a more diverse workforce. And they've realized I'm never going to get it if I rely on elite colleges. Right? Yeah, if, fascinating. I want, if I want rich kids, then fine. Right. Um, but I actually want real diversity.
1: Right. Diversity of uh, thought, diversity of opinion, economic diversity, cultural backgrounds. And uh, yeah, and I'll talk a little bit my own personal experience with that coming from this um, one of the most homogenous places I've ever lived, this little Rocky Mountain town and how college actually frighteningly. Uh, was their first exposure to diversity, you know what I mean, in person? But yeah. I, I understand completely what you mean because even then, you can go to a, a diverse university and choose to hang out with the people that look just like you at the end of the day, and uh, um, not get it anyway. But another issue, so that so we're talking about access and instruction. Uh, another big issue, I think. Any anyone, as I said, uh, any family with uh, children of uh, college age uh, is th- the topic is cost, and I can't think we're more than a year or two away from a college breaching the hundred thousand dollar total all-in cost uh, threshold. Right? We're right. Do you have any? You, is there a is there a pool going on at work on who's going to what university uh, is going to be yeah. first?
0: <laughs> but what's the over under on that on that mark would be it would be a fascinating pool. It, it would um, be especially insiders, you know, like you guys yeah i mean here's here's the thing we know over the past seventy years college college tuition has outpaced inflation by four times, or said another way, if college tuition had kept pace with inflation, college would cost a quarter of what it costs today right yeah can can we sustain that for another seventy years no way yeah can we can we get out of that cycle? I don't see how we do because the system rewards us for spending more um you know you the you have to spend more if you want to rise in the US news and world report rankings um go, go in, into that a little bit because i think most people um
1: and the and cannot answer the question why why is it 6 to 9% every year and the the only explanation you ever get as just a, a general citizen reading the you know the the paper once in a while is um economically, you know, I have an economics background, right? The gap in compensation between those that have and those that don't justifies this creeping expense. But I also think averages are a dangerous thing and like broad sweeping generalizations. And there's that may be true for the top 50%, but then there's a bottom quartile somewhere in there for whom this has been an economic uh, mistake. And then there, I think what we're gonna get into is there's a whole bunch of people who didn't have the opportunity for whom it would have been life changing and beneficial to uh, business and society um, as well. But backing up a second, what what is going on? And I'm familiar with the um, the, uh, uh, the the competition in, in buildings. And my wife went to Wake Forest like me forty years ago. She visited with our oldest son. She's like, my God, it's a club med now. You know, it's it's ridiculous. But what are the other things? I mean, professors aren't getting eight nine percent raises every year, are they? What is causing this? Um, now, three-decade consistent rise in cost to this astronomical level we're at now, talking about $100,000 a year.
0: I'll give, you, I'll give you a quote I heard from someone who heard it from their college president. So, so you, okay. you give this talk enough times. You have, <laughs> you have conversations with people at, at different – so this person said, I heard my president give a talk to a local community group titled, Why Does It Cost $60,000 to Attend My University? And, and he summarized it just brilliantly in three points. So he said, number one, technology doesn't lower my cost. It actually increases it because I still have to maintain all the physical plant. Mm -hmm. Um, number two, I've got to keep up with the Joneses. If everybody else is building big, beautiful buildings, I've got to build, build big, beautiful buildings. If I want to stay competitive with, with students and number three, because I bleeping can, um, yeah, where bleeping yeah. was an actual expletive, yeah, um, yeah. And he and he went on to explain that every year I raise my price. Every year I, you know, get the same, if not more, applicants. Um, while he didn't say it this explicitly, what, what he, what essentially what he was saying is I'm not on the elastic point in the demand curve. Right. Why shouldn't I raise my price? Right. Right. So getting, getting back to your idea of, yeah, there, there is a benefit to going to college and, you know, we in power are trying to price, you know, raise our prices to, to extract some of that benefit. Um, Uh,
1: Yeah. And I'll tell you something I I talked about with uh, Ann Garcia, who was a, uh, previous interview she wrote a book about how to pay for college and it's it's um, very helpful that we're almost the same age I'm going to drag you into my world just yet but we went to college in the 80s I don't know I don't know if you feel like this looking back but I feel like when I applied to college in 1983 or 84 the top 10 colleges cost X colleges and ranked you know reputation wise 11 through 30 cost Y which was less than X and 31 through 50 or 80 were even less. There was some differentiation in price, like you would think in a consumer product, based on the reputation, the expectation of what it's going to do for me after school. To me, the, the one of the biggest differences since I applied to college that really doesn't get talked about much is that differentiation doesn't exist anymore. The top 50 private colleges are all within 5% of each other. I'm guessing this year, you know, all in, 85 grand a year. Um, What is different is those top 25 colleges do have the large endowments, and you could kind of actually go cheaper to Princeton if you had a financial need than you could a school that's ranked 30, which is why. And I have to credit my wife with this uh, insight. As you said, those top 25 schools will never have a problem putting butts in the seats. I mean, they might have to change what it looks like, but they'll have no problem. And the squeeze is kind of between 30 and your public university, um, which is, I don't, I don't know, but that's a huge opportunity for what you're talking about, because at some point you're sitting there going, I'm going to borrow $200,000, you know, because that school that's ranked 50 doesn't have the big endowment, isn't going to give me 40 grand a year. Um, That kind of opens the doors to uh, what you're talking about. So I I don't know if that, if, if that has crossed your, your radar yet.
0: Well, here's here's the thing, and again, I, you know, I, I did a lot of research on disruption in the entertainment industry. Um, in 2013, the head of, um, or the chief operating officer at 21st Century Fox, uh, at an investors' conference, was asked, "Are you at all worried about cord cutting?" And right. what he said was, you know, people will give up food and a roof over their head before they give up cable television. Right. And he and in a sense he was right. I bet he had plenty of of surveys exactly. that said yeah. people will get behind on their mortgage and behind on their credit card payment before they risk their their cable uh being canceled. And and the industry assumed that that was because people loved cable as as a value proposition. Right. And I think what we realize now is they didn't love cable, they just had no alternatives. Right. So You know what's the parallel to education? People are showing up. People are paying truckloads of money. I don't think it's because they love the product. I think it's because they got no other alternatives. If they had an alternative to get to get a decent-paying job, um, I think they would leave us in droves. And I and I think we're starting to see that. You know, I think we're starting to see those alternatives being developed with things like coding boot camps and in uh, apprenticeships, internships. Um, and the overall de-emphasizing of college uh, college hiring among a lot of corporations. Yeah, and, and you
1: touch on it in the book, which is and you already referenced it. It really starts, I think, the missing link was the was the companies, the 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 people who hire the pull instead of the push. Microsoft or Google. Uh, there's there's there is definitely an element uh, of college and other credentials being a filter. You know, I went and got a, a business degree. I had a liberal arts undergrad. It was magical for me. It changed my life. I learned so much. I had so much fun. But if I looked left and right, at least one of those two people had an undergraduate business degree, had been through a credit training program at J.P. Morgan Chase in New York, and they learned absolutely nothing. Right? But they spent two years, and it was a lot less money back then. Uh, getting this extra credential, I went through the CFA program, which is three years of tests to become a chart financial analyst, absolutely brutal. Um, but it was tough. And it was just another another screen for you know, hiring people. But um, talk about Microsoft, Google, what other examples you have where, well, actually, you might want to talk first about um, the concept of, of skills and credentials versus the degree, because that's really the key, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, as I was writing this book, I you know I had I had on my whiteboard you know circled brand right you know right. is that how do we change the value of the brand name in in hiring decisions? And I was just really scratching my head because brands are these you know long lasting, very powerful things, and I remember one day you know scratching my head, and then later in the day buying a really expensive scanner from a. From a company whose who's, who's you know manufacturer I'd never heard of before, solely because it had 4.9 star rating on Amazon and a bunch yeah. of positive reviews, and I was like, "Oh crap, that's how you change brand. Brand is a proxy for missing information about the product. You add in you know add credible information, and all of a sudden, you know, I'll stay in complete strangers' homes because they have a decent you know decent score on Airbnb all down the line." what would it take to make a similar transition in the hiring process and the example i use in the book is this guy uh his name's is gilberto Titretz, uh, and he uh, is working for the brazilian state oil company um he has a degree an engineering degree from a middling brazilian engineering college um and, and in his in his spare time, he likes to play around with the data analytics challenges on a site called Kaggle. And through just practice and interacting with the community, he's gotten good enough that he's risen to the top of the Kaggle worldwide leaderboard in data analytics. They're ranked. And now he's getting yeah, – they're, yeah, they're ranked. Right. Yeah, and – and now he's getting recruited by Silicon Valley companies not because of his his degree, not because of his major, not because of his work experience, but be- solely because they can see this guy's good at data analytics. I don't need to know anything else, you know, else about him. About him, right?
1: Yeah, and that, and that gets to um, you'll look at the the four year degree. I looked at my 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 MBA, you know, and uh, feel like for two years I should have gotten an MBA and a master's in finance, or you just get me out in twelve months. Because um, all I'm doing is modeling businesses. You know, I, I look at the hiring for um, financial analysts. What do they want to know? They want to know that you can take a company balance sheet, income statement, cash flow, put it into Microsoft Excel, have it interact. So if you change one number, it all balances. That's three classes, Michael. Right? That's introduction to Excel, introduction to accounting, and then a modeling class that pulls it all together. Three classes is really the skill set. That those now would it be great if you had strategy and operations and some marketing so the quality of the numbers you put in uh, were better. But as a junior analyst, you're kind of being told um, what that is anyway. But that's an that's just an an option. That is the that they will literally give you a test on that. You could have three degrees. Part of the interview is here's a financial statement. Here's financial statements put together an LBO model, you have 60 minutes.
0: I mean, that's it. You know what I mean? But I spent two years anyway. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely fascinating, right. That, that, you know, a lot of what we provide is just a credential. Yeah. You know, it is, it, it is a proxy. Uh, you must be smart because you put in all this effort to, to, to make it through our process. <laughs> right. um, is there, is there another way of signaling you must be smart? Yeah. And, um, and and it's not just coding. Actually, I talked to a, a good friend of mine who's a journalist, and he said, "You know, I won't hire anybody unless I see their Substack." Right? You know, I, I don't care if you I don't, I don't care if you graduated from Columbia's journalism school. I want to know if you can write. Show me your writing.
1: Yeah, and uh, I'm you. You're reading my mind because that's a whole section about what this does apply to best versus less well. But first, is this a good time to ask you to explain what mastery learning is, that term that's in the yeah. book?
0: Yeah, so, so mastery learning um, is a, uh, a concept that was founded by Benjamin Bloom um, uh, back in the 60s, if I remember correctly. And, and basically what he said is people learn best if they're allowed to master topic A before we go on to topic B. Um, okay. the, and, and it, and it works, right. You know, it's sort of an extraordinarily successful in terms of increasing student outcomes. What's the problem? The problem is I don't have time to do that in a class of, of 30 people. You know, we are all going on to the next topic right. uh, on Tuesday. And if you're not, if you can't keep up, that's really not my problem. I, I you know, I don't feel that way, but, but, the, but the, the concept is, I've I've got to keep the class moving. Wouldn't it be cool if we could let people take the time they need to master the master the concept, um, and then move on to the next concept? We can't do that in a traditional classroom, but there's a whole lot of settings online where you can do that. You know, I, I can say, I mean, to, to your point, in in those introductory accounting classes, there are a lot of people who've worked for J.P. Morgan Chase, totally. and and really just don't need this they can move on to the next topic and then there are a lot of people who you know didn't have didn't have a lot of math background what are and might need some extra time. yeah 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 what, we we can't serve both both sides in our traditional all you know one size fits all model we can do that online um, okay. in a lot of different contexts. And that's, that's what I would love for us to do in higher education is get excited about how can this new technology relax some of the constraints with the old model and allow us to serve populations that we just weren't serving well before.
1: Yeah. And um, we're going to jump into the challenges. That's what everyone's thinking, like, well, what about this, that, and the other? But I actually did the Google Analytics Coursera class, which is like eight classes. And to your point, I'm moving at my pace. Uh, I thought they did an amazing job. You know, I got a little hung up on R, you know, programming at the last. But they they saved that for the last. And they really got you feeling, as you said, like you mastered at your pace this one section. They wouldn't let you move on until you kind of demonstrated understanding. And then you uh, kept moving on from one to the next. Now let's go to the 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 MOOC world. I can watch one of my economic heroes, uh, Robert Schiller, at Yale, um, I can watch his introductory economics class online, which I swear I'm going to do. I just haven't done it yet um, but he's not giving me tests and grading and saying this person passed the class so this is a I think this is a credentialing question so ten thousand people can watch it also a scale a scale question that which is addresses the cost in one way. Um, ten thousand people can watch those videos, but is, is that the same as ten thousand people taking the class like how do you have ten thousand people? credentialed in introductory to economics from Robert Schiller. Is that possible? Is, does that question make sense?
0: No, it makes perfect sense, right? I think that is possible. Um, the, the, the interesting question is, do we in higher education want that to be possible? Mm, yeah. Okay. Um, the this, this system is based on scarcity and it's based on who controls that scarcity. If you were to create a way to credential 10,000 people, um, would that hurt your ranking? Would that hurt your selectivity? Would that decrease the profitability of your existing business model? Might people who were paying you $60,000 start paying you $400 instead for the individual classes? We don't say this quite that, quite that explicitly, um, but I think that's very much in the back of our minds is yeah these tools are out there. yeah these tools could, could deliver a lot of value for people in society, but it's going to come at the expense of my existing business model um, and and this is this is the part that's really painful to me and and you know i I don't know what i'm trying to do in the book is speak to my colleagues and close the loop in 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 our logic right what we know in so this this goes back to the book started as a book about technological disruption. Right. And it really ended as a book about social justice. Interesting. What we, yep. what we know from the data is that if you're a kid born in the top 1%, you've got a one in four chance of going to a highly selective college, one oh. in four. If you're a, bo- a kid born in the bottom 20% of the income distribution, you've got a one in 300 chance of going to the same college. Um, and what I say to my colleagues is, hey, I'm an economist. I believe in the efficient allocation of scarce resources. If we genuinely believe that rich kids just happen to be 77 times more likely to be capable in an elite degree, then we're doing fine. Right. But we if we, we that's don't not believe true. that, yeah, we know that's not true. And none, right. none of us believe that. And if we don't believe that, then this is a terrible way of allocating access to the scarce resource of higher education. We ought to be ashamed of ourselves for defending it. You know, we ought to be desperately looking for ways to create more abundance in a system based on scarcity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the tensions between Yale and Robert Schiller in, in one way, Uh, but then you have people like you and um, he he shows up in your book, Steve Levitt at Chicago, who I think is a a champion of what we're teaching. Like for him, it's like, how's a kid graduate high school without understanding, you know, data interpretation just basic is, is so relevant the last three years how many people in this country could read a study about a vaccine and know what it means you know um so so it's it's you it's levitt uh do you have any other champions out there or, or are you a, a lone wolf in, in the wilderness
0: no i i mean uh, uh mike crow at arizona state university president of arizona state university paul leblanc uh, president of southern new hampshire university um uh Zvi, and I've forgotten his last name, but the, the, the guy at, at Georgia Tech who started yes. their online computer science master's program, there, there are a lot of people out there who are trying to create abundance. Um, it's just that the, the, it, the system doesn't benefit from abundance. It's a, it's a system Understood. based on scarcity. And we in higher education are doing the, the right thing from the perspective of the business model right. in terms of protecting the status quo we're doing the wrong thing in the terms of, in terms of social justice. Social justice. Yeah. The status quo sucks if you didn't grow up in the top 1%. Yeah. Um, And I'd Um, love, I'd love to make that connection is, you know, if we keep protecting the status quo, here's, here's the outcome we know we're going to get. Are we going to be comfortable with that?
1: Talk about um, ASU in in Southern New Hampshire, because I I start seeing those names in ads and, um, you know, graduates talking up the strength of it. And I, I blanked out for a second. I'm like, well, "What are they? Are they, are they just a Phoenix University? Are they, are they brick and mortar existing um, universities that have taken their program aggressively, proactively uh, online?" It sounds like it's the latter. Am I right about that?
0: Is these are real? It's, it's the latter, right? Okay. These these are these are accredited universities. They are nonprofit universities, and they just have you know very innovative, passionate leaders who were willing to make the hard step of saying, we we need to go online. In the case of Paul LeBlanc at Southern New Hampshire, he showed up at Southern New Hampshire and they were a dying, you know, New England school. Like they, yeah. they would be dead now. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Green Mountain College, gone. Yeah. Exactly. What, what he said was we've, we've got to change and this is how we're going to do it. And he got a lot of pushback both inside and outside of the academy, but they've been extraordinarily successful. Um, at creating access through through online classes. Arizona State has a very similar story. Um, one of the stories I tell in the book about Arizona State is it's not 100% online, that there's there's this really innovative and thoughtful mix of online and in person. And the example I talk about in the book is uh, or Arizona State's online organic chemistry class, right? And so you say, How the heck do you teach organic chemistry? You you got to be in the lab. Yeah. You got to be in the lab. So how do you do do that? And the answer is our Austin and and her colleagues looked at the curriculum and what they discovered is, you know what? 13 weeks of this works perfectly well online and we'll bring the students in for a one week intensive on-campus lab experience. Yeah. Yeah. and and what they discovered in surveying both their residential and their and their online students is that they have equivalent knowledge of the lab and organic chemistry but that the online students have a higher identity as scientist when they walk out of that one week intensive no kidding. Uh, lab program that there's you know the difference between doing one lab a week for 14 weeks and doing two labs a day for for a week um you're the second, the second experience, you walk out going, "No, I'm a scientist." Wow! Um, in a way that you just can't deliver in the first one. Interesting.
1: And so, ASU in Southern New Hampshire, are, are right now, are they primarily or exclusively focused on getting you to that four-year degree via this um, online or low-residency model, versus also having some credentialing part of their business? Um, what's that mix like? Yeah.
0: No, you you walk out with a, with a traditional four year degree from an accredited okay. university. Um, yeah. It's just that it was delivered online and it was delivered at a, at a much lower price. And and right. the example I use in the book is over the last decade, uh, a period when tuition at colleges increased by forty percent. Tuition at Arizona, tuition at Southern New Hampshire University stayed exactly the same at ten thousand dollars. Wow. Why can they do that? Because there are a whole bunch of wonderful scale advantages of delivering delivering things online.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you you skip the. Um, I mean, we've both had kids go through college, and you look at that bill. You see the you see the the ads. Oh, tuition is fifty five grand a year. I'm like, well, yeah, but it's costing me eighty five because of the residential housing, the meal plan, with all the other things that you kind of. Have to do that you avoid when you're online so you i'm jumping ahead because you you brought up the topic of um organic chemistry when you read the book and you see the examples and it totally makes sense if google's pulling if amazon's pulling if microsoft is pulling basically saying you don't need this for your degree we're not only do we accept um these uh online credentialing systems but we may create the ones just for what we need um the majority of those examples except for one in, in sales uh, we're, we're IT focused. And th- that is totally logical to me. Are there, um, you know, are there programs, disciplines, majors that don't work as well for this? Or is it just a matter of time till we figure it out?
0: I think there there are fewer programs that don't work as well than, than we would think. Uh, uh, one one of the examples – I wrote a piece in The Atlantic before I started working on this book that, that was basically arguing the entertainment – or higher education in 2020 looks a lot like the entertainment industry did in 2015. We are fat and happy and so darn convinced that technology is not going to change our business one of the first people to reach out to me were two guys who started nursing.com. Mm. And basically what they were saying is you don't need a four-year degree to be to be a nurse. All you need is to pass the boards and I'm going to give you the, the classes you need to pass the nursing boards at a much lower cost and much more accessible than what you could get in a four-year degree. Um, the other example I'll give is I gave this talk at a... Um, let's just let's just say a, a a prominent university. Okay, and there was a per, there was a faculty member in the audience who was just angry and and in a raised voice said, "Would you go to a doctor who didn't have a four year degree?" Right, and as I usually do, I figured out what the right answer was on the plane ride home. And on the plane ride <laughs> home, <laughs> on the plane ride home, I realized. I go to a bunch of doctors. I have no idea where they graduated from. I have no idea what their organic chemistry grade was. All I know is that they're board certified and they came recommended to me by someone I trust. Right? Um, do we really think alternate credentials aren't all that important um, for for you know for for the workforce? Right. Yeah. That that's uh, that. This leads
1: me to so that's kind of like my financial analyst discussion, which is what do you actually need to know to be, go to wall street or uh, be a bank credit analyst um and and I I I'm I this is me just brainstorming I couldn't help but think about this there is a trend in families trying to afford sending their uh child to a four year degree program or really young adults who are paying for it themselves have figured out the best model even to go to CU Boulder you know they're there, there are folks at my age that went there when it was you know, $1,000 a semester, didn't look at it, haven't read a newspaper evidently in 30 years, then they, they assume their kid's going to go there, and they're stunned to find out it's thirty-five grand a year. And by the way, um, they guarantee one year of um, on-campus residence, and then you're in the market on your own trying to find housing in Boulder. And so what young people paying for themselves have figured out is I can go to Red Rocks Community College for two years get credits that I know are transferable, and finish at CU Boulder and still get that CU degree. And it's kind of an interesting, you talk about ASU and, and, and their low residency slash online program. I wonder if there isn't a similar opportunity, if universities are willing to accept it, to say, I'm going to do a year or two online. Uh, but then when I'm, tw- you know, it would be nice to go live on campus. There are things, uh, growing up experiences, people you meet and, and network and grow as a human being. I could go do my last year or two years there. And, and uh, there's a whole other separate discussion, which is where did where'd the magical four years come from, right? But um, do you see other opportunities for this online education to be accepted uh, over over time?
0: There's a whole bunch of opportunities, but it threatens the existing system, uh, and that's, that's that's the massive resistance. Is the scary yeah. thing. Well, and the, the example. I mean, I was talking to somebody who is trying to create a system that makes it easier to transfer credits from um, you know community colleges and and other you know other other programs into traditional four year degrees, and and what they said is you've got to be a forensic accountant to be able to transfer credits. From a community college into a traditional four year degree that the the amount of um, you know detail that the college wants you know what what was the show me the transcript show me the details of the transcript what what were, what were the what were the actual materials blah 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 um, yeah. you know, the amount of difficulty we put these kids through in terms of tra- transferring credits is really quite shocking yeah why is that I think it's partially inertia um, but uh, you know what, what you described if if I'm a particular university and and I need you know I'm, I'm getting paid for you sixty thousand dollars a year to come to my campus, do I really want to create an alternative that you you get the same degree for only two times sixty thousand dollars instead of four times sixty thousand dollars
1: right right and I'm going to throw in another uh, dynamic I've, I've noticed that the university were- – my kids go, but other schools are doing this, where you used to go off campus your junior and senior year. They had so much residential housing, but evidently they must make a lot of money on it because they're all building towers and apartments to keep you on campus uh, for that um, that whole time. Yeah, it's just – it's incredible. It's- so um, an- another fascinating moment in time for this story to be taking place, I think, is the low unemployment where we've been in now for 12 months and hopefully – for another nine to 12, where demand outstrips supply, companies are like, okay, forget about the degree. Um, can, you, can you do what we need? Um, and I think, and I, I did a whole interview on this about the benefits to uh, the disenfranchised parts of our society, um, that not only are they getting hired, but they're getting, they're getting training and, and benefits. And especially that training will help them if they do get laid off during the next recession, they're just more hireable uh, in, in the future. So, um, uh, are there industries outside of tech where they're being there? You're starting to see this play out where they're saying, "Gosh, we, we just need people. Why are we asking for 10 years of work experience and a four-year degree?" And you know, when really what we need is is X. Because I think that's part of the pull again. You know, where companies are driving it, and you may circumvent the university's stubbornness.
0: Yeah, it, particularly in, in the te- in the tech industry, but but I think beyond the tech industry, we're starting to see employers say, um, I you know I, I need employees, um, I want diversity, and I'm going to create opportunities. And some of that is you know Amazon's uh, program of higher education as a benefit. Starbucks does does exactly the same thing. Oh, gotcha. Um, yeah. I, if I remember correctly, U- UPS, if I remember correctly, does does exactly the same thing. You work for us. You get health dental and we'll we'll pay we'll pay for an education. Right. Um, the other one that I find very interesting is employers vertically integrating upstream into training their own employees. Right. Basically saying, I'm I'm gonna I'll educate you on the job and I can do it at a much lower cost, much more efficiently, and much more targeted to what I need right. than if I asked you to, to go out and get a four year degree. Um, uh, Jenny Jenny Rometty at uh, at IBM uh, really pioneered a lot of this um, in the context of what she calls new collar jobs. Right, instead of white collar, blue collar, let's create new collar jobs, and let's do that by you know finding finding disenfranchised kids um, who, through no fault of their own, didn't have access to the you know the privilege of a great K through twelve school system and and a four year degree. Right, and let's train them. Right, let's train them. Yeah. And, and she's she's had great success
1: at, at IBM with that. This is I've totally forgot about this personal story. I'll send you the information later. My second son was a biomedical engineering major. He loves science. He loves biology. Just didn't want to go get his Ph.D. At this moment in time, he wasn't ready to spend another eight years in school. He found a biotech company that really you know acquires early stage drugs and then has labs and brings them through the clinical trials into market. They actually had on their website, Michael, a like uh, a horizontal bar that showed you the timeline to get your PhD versus what they would teach you how to do in a much shorter time frame on the job while you're getting paid, and you're going to know all of the same things to do, basically pharmaceutical research. I mean, fascinating, right? And and interestingly, not a U.S. company. It was their headquarter. They have offices here, but a mentality that came from, uh, outside the, uh, the existing infrastructure to say, yeah, we don't need this. We're going to help you. It was yeah. perfect for him. It was unbelievable.
0: I don't, I don't need all the overhead of a traditional four-year degree. I'll train you to do what, what I need you to do. Um, you know, it, it that's, I would love to see more of that, um, yeah. in, in employers. Cause I really think that's the last domino that has to fall before we create, Not just disruption in higher education. That's not my goal. My goal is to create a much more affordable, accessible system to all the students we're leaving out today.
1: Yeah, I I agree. Yeah.
0: And and I I just don't see how we can do it from within the existing higher education system. We're stuck.
1: I I keep using this term. It's literally coming as I'm talking to you, the the pull, not the push, where companies are sitting there acknowledging it, seeing the problem, and um, uh, doing something. Uh, about it uh, let's be I know people at this point in the interview that are listening to this are gonna say all right here's here are my objections and you address it there's three or four of them in the book let's I'll let them I, I think I have them written down here one is just online education can't compete with the quality of a residential education zooms didn't go well I mean that's an easy one to dismiss because the neither the courses the courses were not designed and the educators were not prepared to teach in that format but online education can't with the quality of, of residential education. I think you have plenty of examples to show that that's not true.
0: Yeah, it's, it's not, you know, it, is it different? Absolutely. Are you getting a different set of experiences? Absolutely. Um, online edge, what, what, I, what I've been saying to my colleagues is online education is worse except for the parts that are better. And Let's pay <laughs> attention to both. Right. Yeah. You know, Let's, you can't do a, a cost-benefit analysis by only looking at the costs. Right. Uh, you know, let's, let's pay attention to both. Are there people we can include through online that we just couldn't include within the bounds of our traditional model? Absolutely. Um, and the example I talk about in the book is uh, my, my daughter... Um, my daughter was president of the STEMinist club in her high school. So, so take feminism and combine it with STEM and you've got STEMinism. Right. And she wanted to take AP physics in her senior year and her high school came back and said, you can't take AP physics because you don't have AP calc. You can't take AP calc because you don't have AP or because you don't have pre-calc and you can't take pre-calc because we're not teaching it over the summer. So you're stuck for your senior Uh. year. And my wife and I sort of, you know, First of all, we're not happy with that explanation, but second, I knew that there's a company called outlier.org that offers online calculus and and offers uh, credit at the University of Pittsburgh. So if you if you pass their online calculus class, you get credit, course credit at the University of Pittsburgh. And so we had a, a discussion with her high school saying, Are you really telling me that if she passes this class that gives her credit at a university that she's not ready for high school calculus? And right. and anyway we, we won that battle, but, but what we discovered in, in watching Molly take that class is um, it was taught by three different professors. It was taught by Tim Chartier, um, uh, you know, a a white guy like me. Um, It was taught by, taught by Hannah Fry, um, uh, you know, a a, a woman and just a top-notch scholar at the university college London. And it was taught by John Urschel, African-American scholar who had finished up his PhD in math at MIT. And oh, by the way, before he started his math PhD at MIT, he was the starting guard for the Baltimore Ravens. Oh, so just I know. Man. Munch yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. But, but what, what they did is, is each of these three scholars taught the same module in their own voice with their own examples. And you could choose which of these three scholars you took classes from. And my daughter immediately gravitated towards Hannah Fry. And I mentioned this to a colleague and my colleague said, oh, Mike, there's a bunch of research showing that in general in quant classes, women perform worse than men in general. And that that difference goes away when the class is taught by a woman. Right. And and their logic is if you're if you're a young feminist and the only people you stand you see standing up in front of the classroom are men, you get the almost unavoidable but tragic conclusion that this must not be a career for me. Right. Um, if I can just give you a few examples of success, that that you're much more likely to to move forward. And by the way, the same is true for for underrepresented minorities. Yes, that, you know, if all you see are white guy or all you see are white people like me, you assume this isn't you know this isn't a career for me. Not true. Right. Um, what's what's the what's the issue? The issue is it's really hard to do that within the bounds of the traditional classroom experience. Yeah. Um, but we can do it online. If we think creatively about how, what does the medium do really well? Right.
1: Um, number, I think this is number three, online education will create even more inequality. The way I read it in the book is, um, that's more of a, is that more of a global issue than a a domestic concern. Um, it's an ambitious objection because we are talking about social justice. Um, it,
0: it's a, it's an ambitious and I would argue um, uninformed. Let me say it politely. Okay. Objection, right? Well, the objection comes. I don't want to create a two tiered system, and my response is we've already got a two tiered system. Oh my system. gosh, yes, already, yeah, yeah, we've you, already got it. Two- yeah, <laughs> yeah. Are, are you not paying attention? Um, yeah. So what what we want is a a high, high quality access to the credentials that you need to succeed in in the workforce independent of the brand name of your college and much more focused on what are your actual skills and knowledge you as an individual. Um, so can we create some of those things where kind of like what I was talking about with, you know, online ratings, um, I can rely less on the brand name of the university. and I can rely more on the actual skills of the human being standing in front of me. That's what I'd love for us to think about creating. Yeah. Right. Um,
1: the fourth one, the fourth one, the, the, the stubbornness. We've referred to it many times. Is no one, no one can force us to change. And I think this is where I keep coming back to the to the pull.
0: This is this is the one that's been really painful for me to hear. Um, I, you know, I've, I've talked to administrators at, at various colleges, and what I've heard is, you know what, Mike, I I hear everything you're saying. I know you're right, but. I'm going to retire in five years, and my job is just to keep the business running for the next five years. Right? Why would I take a risk at this point in my career? The other one that was that was you know a, a, a bit. I know it was a bit sarcastic, but I think it was very reflective of what a lot of people uh, believe in higher education. I, I quote in the book a colleague who said, um, "Faculty have to have an incentive to adopt the technological change." I'm a tenured old fart. I can oh, ride sure. out this disruption until retirement. Uh, and and, and this, this individual closed by saying technology adoption will occur one death at a time. And, <laughs> and I think, I mean, that's really our attitude. We are going to cling to the existing system for as long as we can. And what I'm trying to convince my colleagues is, you know, are we, are we going to be proud of ourselves? Yeah. How 15 about years from now.
1: Plant, plant a tree whose shade I will not enjoy, right? Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, Yeah. Um, There's a, let me ask you before I go to the last question. I was a securities analyst. I managed mutual funds, like anyone listening to this might own in their retirement accounts. And we had some for profit publicly traded companies that were not good actors, right? Acceptance rate was 100%. Graduation rate was 100%. Um, student there was a dynamic with the student loan debt I uh, just i don 't even know there 's not even a question here it 's just an observation that I believe it's it, the government funding is it comes under Title four. If Monday the federal government said we're increasing Title four funding four percent this year on Tuesday morning, these companies would say we're raising tuition four percent there were, and without any governor on, hey, maybe we should cap what a twenty one year old should accumulate in debt. In order to go out and make $30,000 uh, a year. So far, what it, it sounds great what, it, what ASU is doing, what Southern New Hampshire is doing, and some of these uh, tech specialty companies that you described, teaching, uh, programming, or calculus. Um, do you see any risk that that profiteering emerges again, and we start credentialing people um, unethically and you know it's just a for and it's a financial problem for some people just throwing it out that, there
0: that's no totally that, that's that's the thing that keeps me up at night right okay. could could we could we make things worse by trying to make things better right. um and th- and that's a real risk um i'd like for that risk to be seen in light of what we know the the problems are of the existing system a right um and then b i think we can manage those risks right i really do if we deliver education from within a five hundred one c three nonprofit framework, where I'm not just you know I'm not a uh, CEO of a Fortune five hundred company, my, my I don't have a fiduciary responsibility to my shareholders. To maximize profits. Uh, exactly, um, but you know, I, 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 but I'll, I'll give you the the example. You know, let, let's go back to that college president who said, "Why do why does it cost sixty thousand dollars?" Because That's I. It. Because I effing can, right. I went back to you know after hearing that I went back to my to my wife. My wife has my wife has a an MBA and an MS in public policy, and she heads up a a, a nonprofit. Um, and and so she doesn't need me to 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 mansplain price elasticity to her. But I, I go back and I sort of you know this is what he said. You know what do you think? And and she paused for a second and she said, so let me see if I've got this straight. Which, which after 31 years of marriage, I know means I'm about to re- destroy your you <laughs> <it>, right? So, <laughs> so, so let me see if I've got this straight. And what she said is, so this university is a 501c3 nonprofit, right? I was like, yeah. So that means they've taken tax-exempt status in exchange for an agreement to operate in a way that's consistent with the public good, right? Uh, yeah. And I was like, yeah. She's like... I'm fine if they want to behave like a profit-maximizing monopolist. Just give back the tax-exempt status. So 100%. a long way of saying, I think we've got our own, you know, I, I think we've got our own problems to deal with. Um, but it, within higher education, but as we design this new thing, I think we need to be really careful about the the, the problems with the profit motive um, and how do we do this in a way that doesn't make the problem worse recognizing right. that the problem's bad right now, how do we Pretty do this bad. in a way that doesn't make the problem problem worse? Yeah. Um,
1: Michael, I got through my questions earlier than I thought, and I know I only hit three of the four uh, uh, objections, but this is an opportunity I like to give to folks in your seat, which is you know, someone smarter than me uh, that would have known to ask better questions. What would I have asked? What would we have talked about? And what do you want listeners uh, to know or think about uh, because I, this is changing, I'm guessing day to day. And again, going back to the whole publishing timeline, you worked on this book for years, you hand it to the publisher. It takes nine months to hit the bookshelves There are things evolving all the time. Um, you've, the, the, the microphone is yours to, to talk about uh, what you want uh,
0: folks to think about and know uh, about the topic of this book. I mean, in the public, you know, out, outside of the ivory tower, I would really like for us to recognize that this is not going to change unless people put pressure on on higher education. Um, we need, yeah, we we need the incentive to change because because it's not happening from within from within the system. Um, from within the high, with within higher education, I would love for us to 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 think really hard about what you know. What do we want to achieve and can we do it by protecting the status quo? And I really don't think we can. And and the last thing I'd like to say, and this is the last chapter in the book, is how do we change? Um, so I teach technological disruption and uh, the, the end of every disruption story is, the end of every good disruption story is, and the incumbent died, right? You know, so <laughs> right. Blackberry dead, you know, Blockbuster right. dead, you know, on and on. And if you teach it really well, it's depressing. And if you teach it really, really well, there's a kid in the back of the class who's going to raise their hand and say, "Professor Smith, can you give me any example of an industry that has responded well to technological change?" And the and the answer I give is the entertainment industry. Let's go back to where we began. The entertainment industry got massively disrupted by technology, and yet they've been incredibly successful at responding. Right? You look at what Mike, uh, what what uh, what Bob Eigner did at at Disney. Um, he blew up their business model to, pr- to pursue online opportunities. And so the, the question then becomes, why did the entertainment industry respond effectively when so many other industries have just hung on to the death? And, and I think the answer is the entertainment industry recognized there was a difference between their business model and their mission. Their, their model was selling shiny plastic discs for 20 bucks a pop, but their mission was creating great entertainment and getting that entertainment in front of the audience. Right. And at some point they said, my mission is so important to me that I'm willing to blow up the model if it means I can, I can do a better job of pursuing my mission. What's the parallel? What's the mission of higher education? Right. right. And, and I've said this, and, and please hear this provocatively, but if our mission is helping rich kids get a leg up in the work world, we're doing great. Crushing it. Yeah, we're crushing it. Yeah, that's not our mission, friends. Well, the, the mission I argue articulate in the book is our mission ought to be to help as many kids as possible discover their unique talents, develop those talents, so they can use those talents to the benefit of society. I don't think we're doing that well. If that's right. our, if that's our mission. Right. Could we get passionate enough about that mission that we get over all these objections and move move forward? I hope so. I really do.
1: Yeah, technology. Uh, it just occurs to me, being a, a man of a certain age, has experienced technological disruption before and plowed through it. If you remember, you know, VHS tapes were supposed to destroy uh, movie theater revenue, and instead, uh, both markets grew exponentially. You know, together. I think. I think the Netflix case of going from mailing little discs out back and forth to what they are now is one of the most amazing corporate strategy stories in our country's history. It's just incredible that what they were able to do. So they've been through this, I think, some of them.
0: Well, and I'll I'll give you another example. the one The one that I find uh, uh, to me most most interesting is the music industry, right? right. Um, when respectfully, when technology hit the music industry, the questions they were asking is, how do I take my existing business model and replicate it online? I've always sold CDs. How do I use iTunes to sell CDs? Um, what they didn't think of at least initially was Spotify, right? How do I take the unique characteristics of this medium and use it to its full extent? Um, the the the, rec, the recording industry uh, uh, last week announced its first half revenue, and eighty five percent of its re- revenue has never been higher. A, um, and eighty five percent of its revenue comes from streaming. Wow, um, that's a success, friends. Right? That yeah. you know, it's it's not it's not an either or. We're we're not only are they are they incredibly successful financially because of making this shift, but we've also seen just an inc- an explosion in access to great music. You know, like, yeah. like for, for 10 bucks a month, I get Spotify and I get all these personalized, you know, I get all these personalized uh, uh, recommendations on, on, on my end, on the consumer side. And then on the producer side, we've got, you know, bands who can now make a living by, by, you know, posting their songs to Spotify who wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't have been possible for them to be bands previously. That yeah. ought to be something we're really excited about it. And I think, there's a parallel here in higher education in the sense of, I think we can create opportunities for students who previously were left out of the, of the process. And I think we can create opportunities for employers to allow those students to, to succeed to the benefit of society.
1: Agreed. And, and if the internet represents democratization of information, I think about that Spotify example, where now I'm hearing being shown new bands, being shown new album releases instantly. Where when I was a kid in the 70s, you hope that, you know, someone was bribing the DJ. Remember that whole, you know, scene in W. Carapines in Cincinnati and, and, you know, you're hoping that they would play your new record. And that was the only way you even found out about new music. And now the entire universe of, of folks that start off on YouTube, you can record your own music for nothing, put it on YouTube, get a big hit, get an album made. It's on Spotify. And next thing you know, you're, you know. You're touring. Why? Why can't education also uh, champion d- democratization of information? And uh, I think the resistance to you're also democratizing the, the credentials and the skills and the um, um, you know the the gateway to better jobs that that come with it. So there's a lot of inertia, but if companies keep pulling, I, I say this about technology all the time, and I know there are artists that don't like Spotify because they're their re- revenue stream has shifted from royalties to ticket sales. But at the end of the day, like Spotify is an amazing app and consumers at the end of the day will get what they want. And I think the sooner businesses, corporations, for profit or nonprofit understand that and accept that they can you know stop swimming against the tide and get on it and, and ride that wave. So.
0: That's, that's the hope. I would love, I would love for my colleagues to, to see the possibilities of doing the things I know we all want to do and and weigh those in the context of the risks. And I think when we do that intelligently, I think we're going to see that, that we, we ought to really seriously adopt this new medium as a way to create access and equity. And, and I think we
1: will. And I think the, the book is perfectly timed. Congratulations to you. I know you, did, you planned it out just like this. The book is The Abundant <laughs> University, Remaking Higher Education for a Digital World. Uh, Michael Smith, thank you so much for your time today.
0: John, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.